And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. High in the air. Brito back at the wall. Adios, Pelota! That's the type of manager that I'd like to be, which is the same every day. They know what they're going to get. They're going to get energy. They're going to get accountability. They're going to get structure, and they're going to get support. And I'm going to bring those things to the dugout in the clubhouse regularly. It takes hard work, uh, and it takes humility, taking one step forward at a time, making one good baseball move after another. And I really feel like that's how we're going to get where we hope and intend to go. You're listening to Bags and Brisby on Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 109 of the Bags and Brisby podcast. I am Grant Brisby. I'm here with Andy Baggerly, and we are going to take a trip down Nostalgia Lane. How you doing, Andy? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, Ten years ago... The Giants, let's see, exactly 10 years ago, Rick Ankeel hit a ball that circumnavigated the globe and landed in McCovey Cove. That's not the most exciting 10-year anniversary, but it's part of the 2010 National League Division Series, and that is a good memory. That is a good anniversary. So forget the Ankeel homer specifically today, and just in general, we're going to talk about that 2010 National League Division Series, and in retrospect... I'm not exactly clear how the Giants <laughs> You know, it, it's funny. If you were to go back, like, and just, like, you're 100 years into the future and, uh, and, and have a Giants fan look at this, they'd see, oh, well, th- they won the division series three games out of uh, and lost one. Um, they they beat the Phillies in, in six. They won the World Series in five. They never played an elimination game that entire postseason. They never had a backs-against-their-wall game. What an easy ride it must have been. They just <laughs> coasted to this World Series, and that was absolutely not the case. And and one of the big bummers, I mean, of, of the many, many, many big bummers of this year is that, you know, I, I'm sure the Giants had lots of cool stuff planned for the 10-year anniversary of their 2010 team, that iconic team, the one that you know will always have a prim- primary place in franchise history for being the first to win a World Series in San Francisco, and all of the weirdness and the personalities and the quirks that that team had. Um, but yeah, looking, I think this is a great time to look back at the not the World Series in Texas, not the NLCS when they probably made their biggest upset play and beat the Phillies. But the division series against Atlanta, because that was the most squeak-tastic of all the series, I think. Just going back at the stats is absurd. So just to give you an idea of what this series was like, uh, the Braves ERA for the entire series was 1.95. The Giants ERA for the entire series was 1.66. And that gives you a sense of how the, the series went. Now, of course, there are some unearned runs that played a big difference and we'll, we'll get to those but the highest era 
in of any pitcher on the Braves staff was Tommy Hansen. He made one start. Uh, he was knocked out in the fourth inning. He had a nine ERA. Okay, whatever. The second highest ERA that series was Derek Lowe with a 2.31 ERA. He made two starts. They were both really good starts. And somehow that was like the second worst performance on the Braves in that series. This was a ridiculous pitching series. It really was. And I think for the Giants, you know, a lot of these guys were in the postseason for the first time. Uh, you had guys like you know Aubrey Huff who'd played a long time in the in the big leagues, but for teams like the Orioles and Rays that were terrible, um, and and there was a lot of squeeze in the bat going on, uh, and I think the Giants needed to pitch as well as they could, so a lot of these guys who were experiencing the playoffs for the first time could just have a few games to to loosen up and uh, and get used to the pressure. Uh, and yet there were some really, really big plate appearances in, in the series, too. You know, none bigger than uh, Travis Ishikawa drawing a walk with the Giants down to their last out. And then Freddie Sanchez and Aubrey Huff getting the two hits to tie uh, the game in what became, a, a, you know, a, a signature win. So, um, but yeah, I think when you start with this series, you start with game one, right? And that means you start with one guy. That would be Buster Posey, whose successful stolen base got the Giants their only run. Is that is that who you're thinking of? <laughs> Buster Posey's stolen base. The reason yes, the Giants. Thank God there's no instant replay. He was out. He was out. Uh, but, you know, I always, when, when Braves fans would come back to me and say, Posey was out, it's like, yeah, but you know what? Pat Burrell was called out on a garbage called third strike with a runner on third and fewer than two outs. And so I always say, hey, he would have, that cost him a sack fly, even though we both know he would have struck out on the next pitch. Um, but no, it's Tim Lincecum, of course. I mean, that, that game one, right. I r- wrote about it on The Athletic. Uh, it is my favorite baseball game that I've ever attended. Uh, I I have to make sure that I haven't said that before about another Giants game, but I'm pretty sure that this one's it. Uh, Insofar as that, it was A, the most dominant pitching performance that that I've ever witnessed in person. I've never seen a no-hitter or a perfect game. This was it. And B, because there were a lot of questions going into that game. It was the history of the Giants and and how fragile their postseasons always were and how they would always fall apart like a Jenga tower at the worst possible time because of one misplay or one something or other. And it's also Lincecum was a little fragile. Lincecum goes into that game and he has, he had a good season. He picked up some Cy Young votes. He led the league in strikeouts, but he wasn't invincible. His ERA was above three for the first time. And uh, it's, that was part of it. And I think his success calmed a lot of nerves and made a huge difference. Uh, Yeah. I mean, you go back and he was terrible that August and he was going through a crisis and and, uh, and at the end of that month, Brian Sabian called in all the pitchers and said, look, you guys have to get it done. You know, this team is built on you. And and whether it was heeding that message or, or making a tweak, or, or I think Dave Rigetti probably had a lot to do with it. He started throwing that slider more uh, and getting away from just being fastball change. And it's like he reinvented himself on the fly. And I mean, you really have to go stare at this line score for a good like five minutes to take it all in because it was nine innings. It was a complete game. Two hits, one walk, 14 strikeouts, a game score of 96. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, it was... The other thing you got to remember about the Braves is they were banged up. They just lost uh, Martin Prado. Chipper Jones was out. They, They were really missing a lot of pieces that were primary to their offense. And a lot of the guys who were left uh, were just, their bats looked slow. And that was one big key to that game is... Early on, uh, Linscombe was throwing a lot of change-ups and sliders and really spotting them up. And then he, they switched to fastballs. And it's like 
nobody could catch up to his fastball, even though it wasn't 98. It was more like 92. Uh, but whether it was Derek Lee or Brian McCann or Matt Diaz, and it just nobody had, uh, nobody got good looks off him. Nobody took good swings off him that day. And I, boy, it's amazing to look back and think that Buster Posey was a rookie when he caught that game too. I mean, it was, you know, it's all about Tim Lincecum, but it's it's about a lot of the forces around him that day as well. I always forget how banged up the Braves were. I really do. I forget about Chipper Jones not being there. Batting fifth in that game was Alex Gonzalez. And Alex Gonzalez at no point in his career ever had an OPS better than the league average. He was uh, he was a bad hitter. He you know he had some power and that's why he was hitting fifth. But he was legitimately bad. And it's Alex Gonzalez followed by Matt Diaz, followed by Brooks Conrad, followed by uh, Rick Ankiel, who who didn't have a very good year heading into that season. It was a really banged up lineup. And that I'm not saying you need to take credit away from Lincecum, but it explains how he could just throw these diving sliders, diving change-ups, and you know that that these guys have to be expecting the off-speed stuff uh, below the zone because that's how they got out the first at-bat and the second at-bat, and they just couldn't do anything about it. They weren't good enough hitters to pick it up as a slider or a change-up before it got to that point. And they, to that end, when they got fastballs, they were thinking, well, here comes another slider or changeup. I don't have the technological savvy to do what the pitching ninja does on Twitter, uh, Rob Friedman, but I want to see that that kind of commit point for that slider and changeup. When they had to say, okay, this is a fastball, I'm swinging, it has to be really late. And those sliders and changeups, even watching it with the naked eye, it was hard to tell what it was going to be until it was too late. Yeah, it's and that's sort of pitch tunneling, right? You, you, yeah. you try to keep keep the pitches looking exactly the same, uh, and then they break as late as possible so that the the hitters can't really square it up. I mean, it's it just makes all the sense in the world. But you know, as you mentioned in your article, uh, going back and, and reliving the game. It started with a double by Omar Infante, and you were thinking, oh, no. Because you know, not only were you kind of conditioned as a Giants fan to see calamity in the postseason, but you were kind of wondering, what was Tim Linscombe going to do in these big games? Because you know, when he had some big starts, such as uh, like starting the All-Star game uh, a, a year or two before that, he really did not do well. He kind of messed the bed a little bit. And was he going to be up to this? Because you knew that he wasn't, you know, a bulldog mentality guy. He was a guy who who did have some self-doubts. And you wondered, what is he going to do now that he's on this stage, especially when we've seen some slippage? I remember Benji Molina uh, earlier in that season, uh, he said, you know, right now, Timmy's getting people out with his name. The hitters are, are still approaching uh, the Tim Lincecum with his former stuff, and they aren't adjusting yet. They're still facing the name and, and not the stuff. And, and, and that was really kind of uh, a foreshadowing of what was going to happen. Eventually, that name wasn't enough, and, and the stuff did deteriorate. And, and we didn't have peak Timmy for very long, but you know this was a time when he was probably past his peak even when he made this start and yet it's his most dominant start in the big leagues and and probably his most important start i meant to go back and look at the all-star game dang it because that is exactly what i remembered is is that was his big moment until then 
that was uh, the Tim Lincecum with the the spotlight on him, and it didn't work out well. In the 2009 All-Star Game, uh, he battled Ichiro in the, the as the leadoff hitter, gave up a single, and then he hit Derek Jeter with a pitch. And it just sort of unraveled from there, and air uh, didn't help him. But still, it was... It, you could see it. You're not sure if he's ready. You're just wondering if he's, like we like to say, gripping the ball a little bit too tightly. Um, so that was a big open question. Uh, and it really calmed a lot of nerves. But the nerves didn't stop once Infante was on second. And then he just, you know, you look at the the, the box score and it's double, fly ball, strikeout swinging, strikeout swinging. Both of those strikeout swingings were on full counts, and you start to wonder, well, what happens if uh, there's a walk? What happens if there are two walks? You know, what what starts to happen to your game plan if your ace of aces is starts to struggle like he was doing just a month before? And it was after that strikeout, uh, that Brian McCann strikeout, he's calm, and then he comes back out in the top of the second, and you've got Alex Gonzalez, Matt Diaz, Brooks Conrad. That is not, you know, that is not murderer's row. And that's when he really settled down. But it, it that first inning, he I'm not going to say on the ropes, but everyone had questions and probably he did too. Yeah, my memory's also jogged a little bit thinking back to 2009 uh, when he had the opening day start for the first time. It was in Milwaukee and, and he uh, didn't get past the third inning. Uh, he really struggled and that stuck with him. And, and it was something that he resolved to be better at. And he was better on opening day. But there were those moments where it's like the first time he did something uh, on a bigger stage, there were jitters and it didn't always go well. So yeah, I think uh, when you saw that leadoff double uh, to start the game, you're thinking, oh man, this is not going to this is not going to be the Giants series. I mean, uh, they have to pitch to win. And and then boom, that, that switch got flipped and, and Buster made all the right calls. And, and uh, you know, as much as I think later on in their careers, there was all that sort of intrigue about, hey, is there something going on? Why, why is Buster not catching Timmy? They could not have been more in sync that day. I mean, it was just, it was masterful. And to think that the first game of the World Series in the first inning, Lindsay comes on the ropes again, and then he commits one of the most amazing brain farts in, in I've ever seen on a baseball field, you know, just not completing the rundown, allowing the runner to scamper back to third base without a throw. Um, if we had known, like, if we had known somehow that that would have happened, we would have been even more worried about, well, I guess not because they would have been in the World Series, but still, like, <laughs> it's not as if that ended the, the perception of Tim Linscombe being a little weird in the big moments because once it got to game one of the World Series, he was at his weirdest. So if something were, if just one more ball in that first inning and we could have been talking about a different game, uh, but he got through it and, he, he, you know, the Braves got one more hit and that was it. He was just masterful. I almost think that unconscious might be the best word when you talk yeah. about like someone who's hit like, you know, 80 free throws in a row or something. They're unconscious. I, I would watch him perform out there and it would seem like he was not fully conscious. Even like when he threw the last pitch of his no-hitter in San Diego, the one where he threw 8 million pitches and his arm fell off and they had to screw it back in mid midway through. <laughs> uh, he's watching Gregor Blanco send settle under that fly ball and he, it's like he's processing what's happening. He doesn't even... It's sort of a hopeful kind of, you know, 
uh, dopey kind of look on his face. It's he's and then all of a sudden Buster hugs him from behind and he realizes what what he's done. But I almost feel like he is in a state of semi consciousness when he was out there performing, and he kind of had to be because this is a guy who otherwise I think would have a lot of performance anxiety. I you know he was not comfortable with his celebrity, not always comfortable being. Uh, you know, in front of everybody um, and being looked at in that way. And, and I think he kind of needed that uh, to, to operate that way. And sometimes being that way meant that, you know, he forgot about a rundown or he made a mistake. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, boy, when, when he was on and it was just him and the catcher's mitt uh, and he was at his best, I mean, boy, did he make hitters look bad. No, that is my favorite game. I was there, was sitting in the club section and uh, could not believe what I had seen. And the best part was the the walk out of there was just the crowd was into it. The crowd was just a different crowd. It was a crowd that was uh, hurt by the Giants in, in postseasons past. And but they were just into it and, and there was a different vibe like yeah you know what why not us look at that guy he's you know he's five foot nine and he's throwing he's throwing pitches by these huge hulking hitters why not that's ridiculous why not the Giants winning the World Series that's just as ridiculous and there was a, a sense of optimism I don't remember in a previous game and the the fans and the crowd that was a big part of, of the experience that I had at least right and then the very uh, next day uh, the Braves win in 11 innings um, five to four and that's it for San Francisco. They're going back to Atlanta. And uh, you know that the Giants are pretty much, it's one-to-one, but you feel like their backs are against the wall. And it's the way the whole series went. Um, you know, you mentioned the Rick Ankiel homer. That was part of game two. And then they go to game three uh, in Atlanta. And it's another squeaker. It's three to two. Uh, and then it's three to two again in game four. And I don't know how much you want to go through those games, but I mean, my goodness, there was so much drama in them. There was. And the one thing, because no one ever revisits game two, because whatever, it's a loss, but they won the series, they won the they won the pennant, they won the World Series. Who cares about game two of the NLDS? You need to go back and, and look on baseball reference, look at the box score to remember just how painful that game was. The Giants had a very early 4 nothing lead. They had Pat Burrell with a monster home run that, that put him on in the first inning, a three-run homer. And you start to feel, you start to believe again, but the Braves chip away. Uh, they tied it. And what I forgot until just now is that in the bottom of the 10th inning, you have the bases loaded. Kyle Farnsworth comes in. He hits Freddie Sanchez with a pitch. He walks Aubrey Huff. And you're thinking, this guy is trash. He is rattled. There's one out and the base is loaded. And who's up? Buster Posey. So you got one of your best hitters up. Base is loaded. One out. Rattled pitcher. Double play. And then about five minutes later, Rick Ankiel hits his home run. And that's how that game felt. So it's not just, wow, the Giants lost. They're heading into Atlanta. It was bad. It was a bad loss. You felt the Giants should have won several times over. And then you go into Atlanta and the Braves are up again. They're up in the ninth inning. Um, and that's when everything changes. And you mentioned the Travis Ishikawa walk. That was going to be his big moment uh, on the postseason stage for all we knew. And we were always going to remember him fondly because of that walk against Craig Kimbrell, uh, who just... I think he talked to you about that. So do you want to briefly talk about that walk from Ishikawa? Yeah. So, I mean, to set that up, uh, game three, we're in game three in Atlanta, right? And it was another pitching duel. And who were the pitchers? Jonathan Sanchez struck out 11 in seven and a third innings. And old friend Tim Hudson, uh, (laughs) one one unearned run allowed in seven innings. And the Giants are leading 1-0 in the eighth. And here comes Sergio Romo. And Eric Hensky comes off the bench 
and pops a home run. And all of a sudden, the Braves, their win probability index shot up, you could say. Because um, all of a sudden, boom, it, it goes from the Giants leading one nothing with just a couple outs to get to the Braves up 2-1. to one. And so so now, you know, Romo looks like he's going to have the goat horns on. And, and what happens? The Giants pick him up with just an incredible rally off of all people, uh, Craig Kimbrell. And yeah, Travis Ishikawa comes up and he told me later on that his, his knees were shaking. Uh, I mean, he was really, really nervous. And if Craig Kimbrell throws him a strike, uh, Ishikawa is not even sure he would have been on time at all. Uh, but he drew a walk, 3-2, he drew a walk. And then uh, Andres Torres strikes out. And Freddie Sanchez, with two uh, two strike count, uh, just hits a ground ball up the middle. That in today's shift-oriented defenses, either the shortstop would have been right there to scoop it up, probably, but um, it just squeaked through. And now all of a sudden you got two on, and then they bring in lefty Mike Dunn, and Aubrey Huff sort of hucked one into right field, and here comes Ishii to score. Uh, and then Buster Posey hits a ground ball to the exact right place to Brooks Conrad who made like his eighth error of 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 the night it feels like um and and then the Giants pull ahead so yeah it's just there's so many little things that that added up to two runs and and could, would have been different in today's game or with a different infield or or a, a lot of different things but um but yeah it started with with a walk from Travis Ishikawa who would uh, years later, come back to the organization and hit a pennant-winning homer. But that day, he needed to draw a walk, and he did. I always remember the Brooks-Conrad air as, you know, the Giants were down, then then Conrad makes the air, now they're up. And, you know, my brain kind of makes it seem like he was just singularly lost, er, responsible for the loss. Uh, but Aubrey Huff tied the game before that. Aubrey Huff tied it off a left-hander, a pretty tough left-hander at the time, Mike Dunn. And, you know, for all we know, without that Brooks Conrad air, the Giants win in the 15th inning in a different sort of legendary win. Uh, but I'm curious, going over this ninth inning, where it goes Kimbrell, Dunn, Peter Moylan, Kyle Farnsworth with a one-run lead and eventually trying to preserve the tie, uh, where's Billy Wagner? I don't remember what happened. Was he out? Was he another dinged up brave at that point? So uh, Billy Wagner, if I recall, threw the last pitch of his career in that series. Um, and there, there is a really interesting subplot between Edgar Renteria and Billy Wagner from that season. Do you know about that? No, I'm not sure I do. So very early on, I want to say it was on the Giants' first homestand, Renteria hit a game-winning homer off of Billy Wagner. Hmm. And, and then Renteria went on to have just a terrible season. He was banged up. He thought he did, had nothing left at all whatsoever. Uh, he had a torn biceps tendon that was put him on the DL. So he comes off the DL finally in what you think is just a, almost a courtesy uh, um, activation. And he faces Wagner, and he takes a huge swing. And he, he, he sort of just recoils in pain. And it's his biceps tendon again. And this is in, I don't know, maybe August? I'm getting some of the facts wrong. But uh, he ends up tearing the tendon the rest of the way through. And what happened is there was nothing, the, it didn't really do any damage, uh, uh, but it, it alleviated the pain. It was like a release of, of the pain that had been caused. And so here, he, Renneria comes into the trainer's room the next day, and the trainers are expecting him to be done for the season. And he says, guys, I feel great. <laughs> I actually feel I feel great. And, you know, if, if you've had like, you know, plantar fasciitis or different injuries where you've got a, a tendon that's strained, uh, a lot of times they'll just snip the tendon if it's not something that that 
is structurally you know necessary. So his bicep kind of pops out a little bit, but he's okay. And now all of a sudden, it was a question whether Renteria was even going to be on the postseason roster because that's how bad he was. Um, and, you know, remember, Uribe was the shortstop at that time and Pablo was the third baseman. Uh, but they put him on the roster. And one of the reasons they put him on the roster is because they knew he hit Billy Wagner and uh, they were going to be facing the Braves in the first round. So uh, Billy Wagner actually was facing Andres Torres in that series and he ripped an oblique. Uh, and it ended up being the last pitch he threw in his big league career. Um, but yeah, you look back at that Braves bullpen and it was very star-studded. But the, 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 the whole intersection uh, and all the fate involved with Billy Wagner and, and Edgar Renteria in that season, I always thought was just really fascinating. It's always fascinating. All, all, always these little bits where the 2010 couldn't have happened. And I'm a big believer in if 2010 doesn't happen, the Giants go out that offseason and, and spend a lot of money on, I don't know, Carl Crawford or something. Or just something's different. The butterfly effect, the ripples of the pond are different. And then you don't have 2012, 2014. It's bizarre. It's just bizarre, the little things like that. And then when you get into to game four, it's another one-run game. Every game in the series was a one-run game, and it is just as taut. You have Madison Bumgarner, who he had the worst performance by starting pitcher, a giant starting pitcher in the series. He went six innings, gave up two earned runs. Tisk tisk. That is a barely a quality start. How dare you? Um, you know, and it's just it's so taut. And you have the game is you know one to nothing, and then it's uh, one to one and two to one, and you're going into the, the bottom innings, and it's. That's just how the entire series was. And the part that struck with me in the beginning, the first run of the entire series was driven in by Cody Ross. The last run in the series was driven in by Cody Ross. So before you even get to the Doc Holliday stuff, uh, you have Cody Ross asserting himself on the postseason stage. And why is Cody Ross on the Giants at all? Because the Giants were scared the Padres wanted him. And so they claimed him to block the Padres from getting him. And they thought the Marlins would just pull him back. They didn't need an extra. They had their right fielder in Jose Guillen. And the Marlins were like, nah, we don't want to pay him. You keep him. It's the only reason he's there. And that's weird. So you have all these little weird coincidences. Yeah, the Marlins wanted to save like $900,000 uh, or whatever. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the the Wagner pitch that I referenced, he threw three pitches total in, uh, in uh, that division series. And it was in game oh, wow. two. And that's when he ripped his oblique. And, and that's why he wasn't available for the rest of the season or, or the series or his career. Wow. And that, I mean, that bullpen was really stacked where you've got Johnny Venters who would throw uh, this weird backup sinker at 94 miles per hour. That was when he was at his best. Craig Kimbrell was an unknown, but he was just uh, an absolute freak when it came to his velocity. You know, he kind of came out there with this Royal Oswalt physique and was just the fastball slider combination. I guess you see it a lot more now in today's game, but he was he was like that first wave of where did this guy come from? Uh, you had Peter Moylan, who was funky. It was just a great bullpen. And it's to the Giants' credit that they did anything against them. And then uh, if we wrap up against uh, the Braves in game four of that series, you know, they had to win one in Atlanta to bring it back to San Francisco. Uh, and then after, I think the Braves had to be really deflated by the way they lost game three, I think. So then you turn it around the very next night. And I remember being at Turner Field thinking, this is going to be another weird, crazy game. Derek Lowe's going on short rest. Uh, and Derek Lowe was fantastic. The Giants didn't score until the sixth inning. And, and I mean, you, you saw what what made him such a good pitcher in the postseason is he just didn't give in. And uh, 
Um, but you know, the Giants were able to to get it done and, and won three to two. And one thing that I I will always remember. Uh, and I think it may have been the, the moment uh, that Bruce Bochy was the most proud of any team that he had, um, is the Giants are dogpiling each other. Uh, Cody Ross hit, hit the homer off of, of Lowe that, that, uh, um, uh, you know, that got them on the board. Uh, I believe they trailed early in that game. And then they score two in the seventh to go ahead. And they're dogpiling each other. Brian Wilson gets the save. And, uh, and then they sort of all kind of stop. And it was Pat Burrell who who alerted them. And it was Bobby Cox's final game as Braves manager. And they were putting together a little highlight thing on the board. And he came out and sort of waddled onto the field to tip his cap to the crowd. And the Giants all stopped and turned toward the Braves dugout and they applauded for Bobby Cox, who, who meant a lot to Bruce Bochy. And, and they, I love to watch those two guys manage against each other. They did it for years in the National League. Uh, and, and, and really, I think there's a lot of mutual respect between Bruce Bochy and Bobby Cox. And for his players organically in that moment to take in, in what is elation of, of, of winning this uh, postseason series and, and take a moment to you know pay respect to an opposing manager who's retiring – uh, I that really touched Bruce Bochy, and I think he was just he just went on and on about how how proud he was that his guys did that in that moment. Yeah, that's that's a good presence of mind when dogpiling and dreams of locker room champagne are just you know right there. Uh, I looking back at this, do you remember the bottom of the ninth at all? Because Brian Wilson came in, and of course it was going to be a little bit uh, tense when Brian Wilson was out there. Uh, the he walked Rick Ankeel with one out, and then he walked Eric Kinski with one out. So you have the winning run on first base. You have uh, Homer could could win it for the Braves. A double could win it for the Braves. Uh, he was wild, or I wouldn't say wild. He just didn't have his command. And Omar Infante strikes out. So now you've got two outs, two runners on. The Braves can win it with an extra base hit. Do you remember who made the last out of that series? <laughs> I, I do. I do. And it is it is crazy, crazy to, to think about how uh, life works. But yes, you want to you wanna... Share for those who don't remember. It was Melky Cabrera, Giants yep. legend Melky Cabrera, and you know what? If Melky Cabrera doesn't get suspended for performance-enhancing drugs, maybe he slumps and maybe he hits into five double plays when the Giants are trying to get past the Reds, and maybe the Giants don't win that World Series. So that's another one of those little quirks. But Melky Cabrera, that series uh, was as lost as I've ever seen a hitter, and I think that series he was just. As or that entire season, I should say, he just he was not good for the Braves, and Braves do not have a fond memory of him. Uh, let's see, Melky Cabrera was 0 for 8 in that series. He only struck out once. It was just a ton of weak contact, and every time he came up, the Giants were thinking, "Ha ha, Melky Cabrera, yes." Yeah, exactly. And then two years later, uh, you know, the Giants acquire him, um, and uh, and he has an incredible year. Angel Pagan had a great year. Melky had a great year hitting number two. And up until you know mid-August of 2012, on the day that he was suspended, he was leading the major leagues in hits and runs scored. Um, and just was a force for probably the best offensive Giants team of all three that won World Series. And obviously he wasn't a part of that team beyond that. And he skipped town without saying anything to anybody um, and, and did a whole lot of fibbing about uh, trying to get out of that positive test. But uh, so, yeah, he's, he's not going to he's sort of an ignominious figure in, in, in Giants lore, I guess. 
But yeah, just two years earlier, he was like the last guy on the bench and the a guy that the Braves absolutely did not want up in that spot. And and he complied with a very nice bouncing ground ball to third base. And Brian Wilson did his arm crossing thing and and uh, and the Giants were on to face a Phillies team that was a juggernaut and there was no way they were going to beat them, right? No way. I mean, that was it. That was it. Um, and as long as we're just going down the, this rabbit hole, I have to bring up that... Why were the why in 2012 did the Giants have uh, home field advantage? It's because they won the or the National League won the All Star game uh, in the 2012 All Star game. That's how the Giants got home field advantage. Why did the National League win the Nas- win the All Star game in 2012? Well, because they they won and Melky Cabrera was the MVP. And who was he MVP because he was hitting Justin Verlander? I mean, Melky Cabrera singled <laughs> off Verlander in the first inning. Pablo Sandoval hit a triple off Verlander in the, in the first inning, and all of a sudden the Giants have home field advantage. Do you know who the other? hitter was that got the got an RBI against Justin Verlander in the first inning of that World Series to help the Giants get home field advantage. Oh, There's, I feel like I feel like I should know the answer to this. Did, didn't Brian McCann do something? Maybe that's a different All-Star game. It was Dan Ugla. Um, ah, Giants <laughs> legend Dan Ugla. There you go. So yeah. you've got Melky Cabrera singling off Verlander, Buster Posey walking, Pablo Sandoval tripling, Dan Ugla singling. I mean, just a legendary group of all-time Giants greats. And that's how the Giants won the 2012 World Series. How is this not a simulation? I don't know. It's it's crazy. But yeah, it's 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 been 10 years. It's been 10 years since that division series against the Braves and, and then everything that happened after that. And that first round, I remember Brian Sabian telling me, that first five-game series is always a dogfight, and there's so much randomness that goes into it, and you just have to get through it. And if you get through that, then anything's possible. And the Giants, just a couple years earlier, had won 100 games and lost one of those five-game series to the Marlins. They could have very easily just bowed out right there to a Braves team that was nicked up but was able to pitch really well. And every single game was just so torture-filled, which just fit uh, the Dwayne Kuyper paradigm so well. And yeah, it's just, it's a crazy series to look back on. All right, 10 years ago, the Giants played one of the most stressful postseasons series i can remember they came out ahead and glad we are for all of them all right this has been episode 109 of the bags and brisby podcast thank you so much for listening we're gonna have one more podcast it's gonna be on monday and then we're gonna take a little hiatus for the off season uh except for emergency podcasts where when the giants sign george springer when they trade joey bart for casey mize we will be back to jabber about it but yeah thanks for listening and thanks to tanika smothers for producing and we'll see you then. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.